is Brandon Hurth. I'm one of the pastors here. And I, if you guys have been here, you guys have heard me preach, you know that I am not embarrassed about the fact that I can be a nerd at times. And today I just want to confess, one of the areas that that's true uh, is not that I spent yesterday playing board games for much of the day, although that's definitely a part of it. It's that I love history. Like I was the kid in ninth grade that when everyone else was like, history class, I was like secretly kind of under the table like, yes, this is fascinating, but not too loud because I didn't want to get made fun of. And one of the things that I love about history is it just captures the human emotions and the human heart so well. It captures principles that are true of this world that we can learn from. And this week I was reading a story that just kind of gripped me. It's the story of King Xerxes. You guys know this name? Persian king before Jesus. He invaded Greece. 300 Spartans stood against him, right? They've turned it into a movie. When he was retreating from Greece... He got on this boat, and the captain came to him. The wind had picked up. The waves were tossing the boat back and forth. The rain was driving down. And the captain said, Xerxes, my king, we're going to die unless we lighten the load. And he said, I've already let go of everything that we can do away with. King, you need to figure out a way. And so King Xerxes went, and he approached his soldiers, men who had fought with him, Men who had bled for him. Men who were going home to their wives and families. And he said, gentlemen, it's on you that your king's safety lies. Throw yourself overboard that your king might be saved. That was the wind picking up from the storm. (laughs) And these these soldiers knew their king, adored their king, loved their king, trusted their king. History tells us that they considered him to be like a god. And when he gave them a command, even one as big as this, one by one, they chucked themselves overboard. And now you might have some issue with King Xerxes. I certainly do. But I think it illustrates a real truth about this world and about the human heart. And that is the request, no matter how big or how small it is, actually matters less than the character and the authority of the one giving it. The content of the request, whether large or small, matters less than the person who's asking it, the requester. These guys wanted to go home. They didn't want to kill themselves. But they valued their king so highly that when he gave them the order, they willingly jumped overboard. And it got me thinking a lot about where we are in Luke. We're in Luke chapter 9, if you guys want to turn there. Luke chapter 9. It's the hinge point. This is the hinge in Luke. The first half has been all about the question, who is Jesus? The second part here is all about what does it look like to follow him? What's it look like? What is discipleship? And today we're going to look at a very hard command of Jesus But when we do, I want us to keep something in mind. This one big truth in this message today, I think we'll be far more willing to follow the hard commands of Jesus when we first see the character and the authority of the one who's asking us to. We'll be far more willing to follow the hard commands of Jesus when we get to know the character of our Messiah, who it is that's asking it of us. So how we're going to tackle this is we're going to first, just like Luke, look at who is Jesus today, And then second, what's he calling us to do? How are we to respond to the fact of who he is? So why don't you guys stand up? 
We're going to read God's Word here. Luke 9, starting in verse 18. Once, when Jesus was praying in private, this is something he often does before major events in the Gospels, and the disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets from long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their crosses daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory, and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. You guys can grab a seat while you are a little freebie. That last verse has tripped a lot of people up. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Let me ask you this. Has the kingdom of God come in its fullness yet? No. Not, we're still on this side of Revelation 21 and 22. There's still death. There's still suffering. There's still sin. Let me ask you, have all the disciples who were standing here that day died? Yes, not a trick question. You're not going to go to Olive Garden after the service and bump into Peter or John. So how is this passage true? Did Jesus make a mistake? No. What Jesus is saying, we'll actually see it next week, is there's going to be three of them that are going to be ushered up on this mountain. And there they're going to see heaven opened up. And they're going to see Moses and Elijah come down. And Jesus is going to be transfixed. He's going to be blinding and dazzling white where they can't even hardly look at him. And they're going to hear God's voice thunder down from heaven. They're going to see a glimpse into the kingdom of God. And so will you if you come back next week. Okay, my infomercial for repeat church attendance is over. Verse 18 So Jesus is with the disciples. He's praying like he often does. And he asks them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Does this sound familiar? When we're reading scripture, we always have to ask, have I heard this before? Please don't say yes when we stood up two minutes ago and read it. Have you heard this before? Two weeks ago, Will preached at the start of chapter 9, which coincidentally, I hope you guys are enjoying chapter 9. We were in it two weeks ago. We were in it last week. We're in it this week and next week, maybe even some after that, which sets us up to finish up the Gospel of Luke around Christmas, 2025. But verse 7, Will just kind of highlighted it a little bit because he knew it was coming up here. But verse 7 says this. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, had heard about all that was going on. This is not the Herod who put the babies to death at the beginning of the gospel. This is his son, and he was perplexed. 
because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Now a little bit of backstory on why Herod is so confused here. Herod and John the Baptist had a little run-in. Herod, the selfish dog that he is, violates bro code. You guys know what bro code is? It's that code that every guy instinctively lives by. We're very simple creatures, but we do have a few principles that we honor. And one of those is, by fifth grade, every guy knows this fact. You don't ever go after your friend's girl. Ever. Amen. Thank you. Right there. You guys hear that? She's mine. No, I'm kidding. You don't ever go after your friend's girl. And Herod, he decides, you know what? If I'm going to break it, I'm going all out. So he divorces his wife. He goes over to his half-brother's house, and he sees his wife. And he says, you know what? I want her. And so he takes his half-brother's wife, and he brings her home to live with him and to be with him. Enter John the Baptist, who hears about this, and he's like, not okay. Not okay, Herod. And he has the audacity to begin to publicly speak out against Herod's decision with his new wife. So what does Herod do? He can't have John preaching against him all over the place, so he arrests him. He would have killed him, the Bible says, but he's afraid of the crowds because they think John is a prophet, rightly so. So Herod has John the Baptist in his house, and we know a little bit about what was going on. John would preach to Herod. And we know John's message was something like this. Repent! Believe the kingdom of God is at hand. There's one who has come whose sandals I'm not even fit to untie. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ of Nazareth has come. And Mark 6.20 tells us that Herod would listen to John, and he was intrigued. He was a little perplexed, but then it says, but he liked to listen to him. So Herod would call John out, John would preach, and that would probably be something of the message in a private audience, until one day Herod gets really drunk. And Herod calls out his stepdaughter to come dance for him. You can't make this up, it's really weird. She dances for him, and he's so pleased that he offers her whatever she wants. And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so now Herod, obligated, takes John, and he has him killed, and he brings out his head on a platter. Now, can you imagine why John is a little confused when people are saying John the Baptist, or why Herod's confused? John the Baptist, he's back to life. It'd be a very scary thought. Let's fast forward a little bit, though, to Luke Sick, or Luke 23. This is where we'll be at Christmas, 2025. Little spoiler. And you guys can read this, but what basically happens is Herod finally gets his day with Jesus. He's been looking for him. He's been wanting to talk to him. He's been hoping maybe Jesus will perform a private miracle to prove that he's the Messiah to me. And so Herod starts peppering Jesus with all these questions, and Jesus stands before him silent. He won't answer a single question, and so Herod sends him off to die. And you say, that's kind of cruel of Jesus. Why wouldn't he answer this guy's questions? Herod had one of the greatest preachers in the history of the world living in his house, preaching private messages to him about how Jesus was the Messiah. And he listened to numerous sermons on it. 
and he didn't respond. And he had John killed and brought out with his head on a platter. And why am I telling you all this? Because we each have a question to answer today, too. It's the same question that Jesus answered the disciples. It's the same question that Herod was asking. It's the same question that he's asking of us today. But what about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? And I want us to learn from the likes of Herod. Herod was very intrigued. He was perplexed at the message, but he was intrigued. But there's a big difference between being intrigued and being committed. And Herod wanted a private miracle. Jesus, if you're real, just come up and do something to let me know. And I think we say the same thing today. I know that I've prayed it before. Write your name on the wall. Do something with the clouds. Show up right here, and then I'll believe. And Jesus stands before him, and he's silent. And in a world where tomorrow's not promised, in a world where Herod thought he had probably had tons of time to figure this out, I implore you guys, there's no question more important than this today. I can't guarantee that you'll ever hear the gospel again after this point. That's just the world that we live in. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. In a sermon like this, I might say thousands of words, but probably none of them are more important than just repeating Jesus' question to you. But what about you? Who do you say that he is? Look at verse 20. It's what he asked the disciples. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? People today in America have tons of different answers to this. Jesus was a great ethical teacher. Jesus was a prophet second only to Muhammad. Jesus was fiction. Some say he's who you're to believe in if you want to get to heaven. I had a professor who walked into class, and I remember the first thing he said one day was, Jesus Christ is a crutch for the emotionally weak. A crutch being something that you need to help you stand when you're too weak to stand up on your own. And to that, I just want to reply like, oh no, Mr. Professor, he's so much, much more than that. He's not just a crutch for the emotionally weak. He's a crutch for the mentally weak, the physically weak, the spiritually weak. Because none of us can stand on our own. We need him. I need him to stand. But that's how I would answer this question. How would you answer it today? Is he the one who lifts you up when nothing else can? Because how you answer this question today will have dramatic impact in how you live your life tomorrow. I guarantee it. And the reason I can guarantee it is because study after study has shown that what you believe and what you think is what ultimately changes how you live. In fact, that's one of the most common forms of counseling today is CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, which focuses on if we can change how a person thinks, if we can change what they ultimately believe, their actions will follow suit. Thus, I want to argue, guys, that what you believe and how you respond to this question today is paramount. It should be top priority. And I know some of you guys are honestly searching, saying, I've been hoping for a private miracle. I've been asking Jesus, if you're real, prove it. Herod didn't get a private miracle, and I can't guarantee that you will. But there is evidence. There's evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. I like to read Amazon reviews. Am I alone in that? 
I hope your laughter means I'm not. My wife thinks I'm obsessed. I will read and read and read, but I like to focus on the people who've had the product the longest or have worked the closest with it. Why? They're the people who are most exposed to the faults and the flaws with it. And the same thing is true with people. If you guys are married today, your spouse knows your faults better than anyone else in this room. I can pretty much guarantee it. We have a guy that we've invited to live with my wife and I, and he is well aware of the faults in the hearth house, having lived with us for over a month now. If you guys, same thing with dating distance. Dating long distance. If you do that, you can end up marrying a real weirdie. I'm telling you. <laughs> Trust me, I dated distance, and my wife got a weirdie. But the reason is because you can fake something for a weekend. You can fake it for a long holiday. But when you're with a person day in and day out, the crazy's coming out. You say, where are you going with this, Brandon? I don't know. Let me find my place. <laughs> ah, yes. Proof. Okay. Verse 20. But what about you? you lose your place, just go back to the Bible. That's my strategy. But what about you, he said? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. These disciples were with Jesus day in and day out. All day, every day. If there's anyone that would be exposed to the faults and the flaws, it's them. And look at how they answer this question. In fact, the people who were the closest, who saw the most, the good days and the hard days, are so utterly convinced that Jesus is Messiah, God incarnate, Savior of the world, that they're willing to die for it. Almost every one of these disciples will be murdered for that truth right there. They saw someone who was worth giving it all for, the pearl of great price that they would sell everything to just have. But what kind of Messiah did they find? Messiah, Savior. Verse 22. Jesus tells us a little bit about the kind of Messiah he is. Let's actually go back to 20 just because I love it. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. And he said, the Son of Man. Pause. Where's this found in the Bible? Son of Man. Ezekiel. I heard Daniel over there. Daniel 7. Turn over there. Daniel 7 with me. Starting in verse 13, we get a picture of what would have been seen when someone heard Son of Man or what would have been envisioned. Verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. This is the description. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I think the disciples cheered. Jesus just confirmed he's the Messiah. And then the very next words out of his mouth is the Son of Man. And I think they thought it like, hallelujah, he's heard our cries, our oppression underneath Rome. He's come to usher in his kingdom that will never go away. 
this kingdom that will be an everlasting kingdom. Finally, the one who is over all creation, who all creation will bow before, is here. John, one of the disciples there to, at this day, says it this way in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. He's speaking about Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1. The Son of Man is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who is Jesus? Who is this Messiah? He's the king of all kings, and he's the creator of everything. I started thinking about creation this week. If he's created all things, how much stuff is there really? Do you guys know that astronomers state that the universe is about 93 billion light years across? Boy, I can tell from your faces, that is not impressing you. <laughs> We're going to need a little help. Can I have, Grace, will you come up here? Everyone say, hi, Grace. Hi, Grace. Perfect. You guys did so good with that. So, Grace, if you'll just stand on that side of the stage, yep. Grace, I want you to imagine with me that she is on one side of the universe, and I'm on the other side. By the way, this is the known universe, just what we can see with telescopes. So it's kind of like this room where there's a whole lot more space going on. This is just what scientists can see right now with current technology. So if I were to take this ball, this is an, a magic ball, indestructible, it just travels on a straight line, and I were, I play baseball, so I were to really get a, a good crow hop behind this throw and throw it as hard as I could, and it traveled at the speed of light, because, I mean, that's believable, right? <laughs> I've been working out, so faster than any speeding bullet, faster than any missile, faster than any rocket that we have or jet, this thing goes at the speed of light, and I were to throw it with my good little crow hop here, how long would it take to reach grace? 93 billion years of traveling at the speed of light. And then grace were to throw it back. For us to play catch one time like that, 186 billion years would have taken place for that to happen. Thank you, grace. Yeah, give her a hand. While this magic ball traveled, it would have passed trillions of the 70 sextillion stars. Still nothing, huh? <laughs> all right, well, you're in luck. Maybe I've got the hardest thing to picture of all. I want you to imagine an 80-degree day at Grand Haven right now. Sounds pretty good, right? You're sitting on your towel. The sun is shining. It's warming your face. And the waves are lapping, and you reach down, and you grab a handful of sand. And as you do, you kind of lift up that hot sand, and you watch it fall and kind of drain from your hand like sand from an hourglass, and you begin to count the grains, maybe a couple hundred. Now, I want you guys to picture 
all of the sand at Grand Haven Beach, all the way down every grain that's there. Got it in your mind? Now add to that all of the grains on every beach on the planet. Add to that every grain of sand in every desert on the planet. Now multiply it by 10. 70 sextillion. (laughs) Wow is right. Did I mention that that number is actually from 2003? And so we've had, was it 12 years of technology advancing and scientists have only continued to find more and more stars. And then we read the psalmist say things like this. He determines the number of stars and he calls each by name. Jesus is a king of utter and absolute authority and power. Now, if we stopped here, it would be enough. I think we can all see why all creation is going to bow before him. This is the creator who just spoke these things into existence. But Jesus doesn't stop here, and neither shall we. You see, the big question of this sermon for me is not, how can I get you to accept that God, creator of all? The big question for me is, how can the God of this universe who created everything Accept us, a fallen and sinful and unholy people. That's the question that keeps the universe up at night. That's the question that we all should be asking. I think most of us walk in here, and if you're like me, you're wondering who's going to win the Oscars tonight. But really, this is the question that should be on our minds. How can a God who created everything, who's holy and perfect, be mindful And accept me, a sinful man. Thankfully, Jesus answers it for us. Look at verse 22 again. We read part of it, but we stopped just after Son of Man. Verse 22, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day rise again. It's one of the most beautiful fusions in all of Scripture. Daniel 7, this great, triumphant creator, king that everyone's going to bow to. And Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who's going to be crushed for our iniquities. In a minute, Jesus is going to call his disciples to some very hard things. But this verse right here is a game changer for how we see it. Jesus, the one who names the stars, doesn't order us to obey. He could have. Scripture says all creation was made through him and by him and for him. He could just order us to obey. Every ruler in history who's had much power, Napoleon, Alexander, Stalin, Mao, Hitler, I don't care who it is. What happens when they get a little power? They want more. They try to take more. They begin to control, to manipulate, to ensure that they keep it. They ask others to sacrifice so that they can have power. What does Jesus do? He's got an army of 5,000 in the passage we read last week. Zealots ready to fight for him. What's he do? He sends them home with dinner. He has legions of angels at his side, ready to fight with just a a word. 
and he just holds them off. Instead, he relinquishes all power and he suffers and he dies so that we can be elevated. He becomes rejected so that you can become accepted. He becomes punished so that you can be pardoned. Crossroads, do we believe this? This should be so much bigger in our minds than 93 billion light years or 70 sextillion stars. This is huge. The one who created it all, who created you in his image, who knows you, not a hair falls from your head without him knowing it. That God, with all that power, all that authority, the one who made it, came down and became a man. And he suffered and he was betrayed and he died for you. Does that set your heart on fire? Does that enrapture you? Because if it doesn't, we might as well stop the sermon right now because you'll never follow him in discipleship if that doesn't grip you first. That's the good news of the sermon. Now let's get to the hard call of Jesus. Verse 23. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their crosses daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet to lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus doesn't just want your belief. He wants your life. Jesus doesn't just want your belief. He wants your life. James 2 says that even the demons believe and they shudder. Look at the next page in your Bible. Luke 9, verse 57. See, I told you guys it was the next page. As we were walking along the road, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, No one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What's going on here? These guys seem to have the right heart. They want to follow Jesus. It seems like they're making some reasonable requests. And Jesus has some hard words. Jesus is reading what's most important to each of these people. The first one wants a home, wants security, wants safety. And Jesus says, okay, you want to follow me? Just know foxes have holes, birds have nests, but if you follow after me, we're not going to have a place to lay our head. You still want to come? To the next two, it's family. And really the key is even in the wording that they use. I'll follow you, Jesus, but first, let me go home and bury my father. I'll follow you, Jesus, but first... Let me go back and say goodbye. And Jesus says, I want to be first in your life. 
Because there's a simple truth about every one of us in this room. 100% of the time, we're going to orient our lives around what our treasure is. Whatever's most important to us. 100% of the time, whatever it is that we long for most is going to be what we orient our lives around. You'll always structure it around your treasure. That's just the way that it is. For me, in those moments where I'm not believing the gospel, where I'm not focused on God, when I begin to slip into what is it that I crave, I start to look for things like security. I want a place where my wife and I can raise kids. Acceptance. I want to make sure that people accept me. Am I accepted by my friends? Am I accepted by my family? Am I accepted by the staff, by you guys, by the stranger on the street? I don't discriminate. I want everyone to like me. (laughs) Significance. My dad was an alcoholic and a drug addict who lived a life that left very little impact on the world positively. Am I going to be like him? Will I live a life that matters? If I'm not careful, these things creep in and they begin to consume me and steer me and orient my life around where I will overwork myself to make sure that everyone accepts me and approves of me. I'll overwork myself to make sure that we're safe and secure and that we're making some kind of an impact in this world. We will orient our lives around what our treasure is. What is yours? What's the thing that you will devote your time to? What's the thing that you devote your money most to? What's the thing that you'll sacrifice for, you'll go hungry for, you'll bleed for, if you can just have it? What keeps you up when you don't have it? What do you wake up in the morning thinking about? True discipleship is a shift in our desires. If you're living for anything less than the living God today, you're not living for enough. If you don't believe me, Jesus says it in verse 24 and 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Charlemagne, famous king, king over much of Europe in the 700s, known as the father of Europe to some, a guy of power, a guy of influence, an emperor, a king, very wealthy. When he died, he had a will made up of what he wanted to happen to his body. I want to be embalmed. I want my remains to last as long as possible. I want to be put in a tomb, but I want to be clothed in purple. And I want to be set on a giant marble throne right in the middle of this tomb. And I want the tomb to be paved in gold coins. I want a scepter in my hand. I want a sword by my side. And I want a Bible on my knee. Those were the requests. And when they opened up the tomb for Charlemagne over 100 years later, they found all of it had been followed. But there was one other detail, and I don't know if it was his wishes or someone else, But on his knee was that Bible, and his hand was on that Bible, and his bony little finger was pointing to one specific verse. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? A corpse is still a corpse no matter how you dress it. 
The only sound investment in this life is Christ. All the things of this world promise life, and in the end they give death. But Jesus promises death, and in the end he gives life. Let's look at verse 23, and then we're done. Then he said to them all, all the disciples, everyone who was around, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Deny yourself. What is that? It's a season of Lent, right? 40 days where we deny ourselves something. Maybe it's sugar, television, hair. Maybe that's just me. I thought about giving up cheesy preaching jokes. That obviously didn't happen. It's not what this passage is talking about, though. Self-denial is a far more encompassing term than simply giving up sweets. It's the same word that Luke uses to describe Peter denying Jesus before his death. Peter denied, renounced, utterly turned his back and disowned Jesus. That's what this is talking about here. When we deny ourselves, we're turning our back on how we used to be. Paul calls it the flesh, the old man, and we're to put on a new man. He says it this way, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not denying a certain few luxuries in your life. It's not giving up a few petty self-indulgences. It's giving up self-indulgence completely. Please, today, don't trivialize what Jesus is calling us to. Self-denial and cross-bearing are huge. They're a total shift in our worldview where our life used to be oriented around ourselves and what we wanted. And now we say, Jesus, take my life. It's yours, oriented around you. Discipleship is costly. And if you're thinking today, yeah, but I can follow kind of half-heartedly. I don't have to go all in. Listen to Jesus' words. If anyone is my disciple, he or she must deny themselves. So if discipleship is so costly, which it obviously is, why would any of us do it? That's where I go back to how we started the sermon. We'll only obey the hard teachings of Jesus when we first see the character and the authority and the beauty of the one who's asking these things of us. We begin to gladly carry our crosses when we first see that he carried his. Actually, it's better than that. Jesus didn't carry his cross. He carried our ultimate cross. He paid our penalty so that we're freed up not to carry our crosses and deny ourselves to repay him or to try to earn something. No, we do it now as a response in worship. Xerxes, that Persian king that I started telling you about, He liked to proclaim that he was a god. And when push came to shove, he asked his soldiers to jump in the water that he might be saved. We have a king who actually is God, who created all, 
And when we rebelled and we turned this world into chaos, He didn't ask us to jump overboard. He jumped into the chaos so that we could be saved. When we really grasp that, when our minds are open to who He is and how great His love is for us, we're motivated and we're empowered to follow after Him no matter what it costs, no matter what we have to give up because there is no treasure that's equal to Him. So is Jesus really calling us? Is Jesus really calling you to self-denial and to cross-bearing and to following after Him? Yes, absolutely. But when we look at what all He's done for us, it's no longer too much of a cost to bear. It seems like too small a gift to offer. Are you in that place today? Because today, Jesus is still asking, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And he's still laying out the call, if anyone wants to come after me, just deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Will you follow today, Crossroads? Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for dying for us, for coming as a man, and for paying our debt that we couldn't pay. God, that we couldn't stand, and yet you became the instrument to help us stand. I pray that you would take the seeds that you've planted through your word today, and that you would grow them, that you would let nothing snatch them away. Reveal anything to us that we have first before you. God, give us the courage and the power to just begin to confess those things, to begin to repent and to turn away from them by just looking to you and putting our focus and our gaze solely on one who is worthy. God, help us to be a church of disciples, people who have seen their king and live lives that reflect that. Pray this in Jesus' precious and holy and mighty and saving name. Amen. In a second, we're going to.